Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm your host, Meryl Arnett, and my passion is making meditation accessible and enjoyable. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a guided meditation. If you would like to access these meditation practices as standalone audio files for your daily practice, please subscribe to my newsletter at merylarnett.com. It's free and you'll receive a new mini meditation each week, along with behind the scenes content and bonus material for each podcast episode. All right, let's grab a cup of tea, a comfy seat, and settle in for today's practice. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Mindful Minute. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, I am bringing you a really important conversation with author and social scientist Carla McLaren. She's just revised and updated one of her books, The Language of Emotions, that I have been working my way through. It is so powerful, so helpful. And I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you today. If you've been listening for any amount of time, I know you know I spend a lot of time and energy talking about bringing our emotion into our practice, that mindfulness, that meditation is not a practice that takes us away from emotion, that even changes emotion, but really it is a practice that brings us into safe relation with our emotions. And this is exactly what Carla is teaching us how to do. So in today's episode, we talk about the emotions as a sense, another sense, just like sight, smell, taste, touch, which was a profound realization for me. We talk about anxiety and panic. We talk about boundaries children and emotions, parenting children with big emotions. What else? Four keys to emotional genius. I mean, we cover so much ground. And I think there are some really tangible, really beneficial things to take away from today's interview. I hope you find it as uplifting and as helpful as I did. Be sure you listen all the way to the end. I love the practice that Carla shared with us. It is so simple, you won't even believe it's a practice, and yet I immediately could feel the effect of the awareness she invited in for us. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's listen in. Carla, welcome to the Mindful Minute. I'm so glad to connect with you. Thanks so much, Meryl. Mm-hmm. I have been slowly working my way through your updated book. It has been (laughs) both a pleasure and a challenge to read in all the good ways that books should be. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you about emotion and empathy. Um, And I wonder if maybe we start, maybe you could give listeners just a little bit of background on how you came to work with emotions the way that you do. The story begins, (laughs) and I say this in the book, it began when I was very young, I think three, we lived in a neighborhood where there was a child molester across the street. So that was a part of just growing up in that neighborhood and for the girls and little girls. And so 
that was sort of normal, but it, of course it's not normal at all. And a number of things happened to me in response to that abuse. For instance, um, I lost my boundaries, which is a big thing that happens to people in any kind of, you know, crime. Um, and so I became very, very hypersensitive. And I also turned up that sensitivity so I could keep myself safe because this happened over a period of maybe eight months to a year before it was found out. And so with that level of openness and without a sense of boundaries or a sense of who I was, I became very emotionally volatile and very emotionally, what would you say, sensitive, hypersensitive to emotion. So for me, emotions were not something that I studied in a in an academic way. It was more, I need to understand these things before they kill me. <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna kill me and so having that early experience of emotions being I would say really a negative force a really um you know I was having these difficulties in my in you know in the actual abuse but then it went everywhere and my experience of emotions was that they were just a problem they were just a problem and growing up I maintained that sort of extreme openness and lack of boundaries and lack of sense of uh, reliable sense of self. <clears throat> so I kind of was in this stew of intense emotion and I had to learn it kind of um, from the outside in kind of sociologically. So I would say, okay, category anger. When my dad is angry, when my mom is angry, when the dog is angry, what has happened and what are they trying to do, mm -hmm. right? And then I understood category anger is about boundaries, right? Category sadness. When the dog is sad, when my mom is sad, when my dad is sad, right? what has just happened? And then I understood, okay, it's time to let something go. Uh, so I began to understand emotions categorically and mm -hmm. in terms of the group experience, because my experience was so overwhelming that I sort of couldn't make heads or tail of it, right? So I was a little social scientist, you know, <laughs> like taking notes. Okay, category hatred, what is that, you know? <laughs> so that's how it began. That's how it began. I, I love that. It's it's so interesting. And it it made me really reflect on my own experience young experience of emotion and i think mine was quite different in the sense that what i can identify now looking back is i think i just was like oh i'm i'm not doing that <laughs> i'm going i'm going to live up here <laughs> in a place where all of that mess doesn't really touch me and then my whole adult life has been coming coming to terms with that <laughs> Like it's so refreshing up here. Right. It's so much easier. It's so much easier. But not actually. That's not actually the truth. Yeah, that is that is a fascinating entryway into emotion. And you because we're talking specifically on a meditation podcast, I want to jump right to something you said that I underlined a hundred times with all the exclamation points because I so agreed with you. And you mentioned, I think pretty early in the book, you mentioned the overwhelming tendency in yoga and meditative circles to 
really step into it. You know, I, I use the word spiritual bypassing, and I think the word you used was disassociation, but this idea of stepping out of emotion as a way to attain spiritual enlightenment. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you saw in that experience, what you see as like a trend in that experience, because um, I think it's important to name it. I was, um, my mom became a yoga teacher. She she had a lot of physical health issues that weren't being addressed. And she found yoga and, and she got well. And so there was a kind of a miraculous kind of energy around yoga. Mm. And so she became a yoga teacher. And that was our sort of entree into the 1970s new age world, right? It was our gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> we became vegetarians. We began, you know, going to see Krishnamurti. He was alive then. And, you know, we were in that whole world. So I grew up in that yoga meditation culture. And I found there wasn't really a place for me there because the idea of turning off emotions, that was not going to happen. <laughs> that was not going to happen. And I also found that I'm really more of a kinetic or organism. So sitting still was not, it's not a way that I function. And there wasn't any kind of understanding of people like me at the time. So I was just a failed meditator, right? Mm. I was just failed mm. until I found, I think, Gabrielle Roth's work. Do you know her? I do. Yeah. yeah. And hers is meditate through dance. And I'm like, all right, there we go there. That's how you yeah. do it. Um, but I did notice, you know, still being that little kind of social scientist, I watched what happened to people when they tried to not be emotion, tried to move away from emotions. And at that time, I don't know if it's still the same, but there was an extreme hierarchy of the self where Spirit was the best and only. The, the mind, depending on where you were, but it was, you know, they call it the monkey mind. So there was no mm -hmm. hatred of the mind. The body, <laughs> the body was, you know, could be annoying, could be a thing you have to ascend above. But the emotions were absolute trash garbage. The emotions were, oh, no, right? And so I watched a whole community of people who had decided that emotions were not acceptable. And what happened is it wasn't all candy and, you know, and, and love songs. What happened is because people didn't know how emotions worked, they didn't know what their emotions were doing, they ended up in so much pain. And in the communal level, people would savage each other without anybody being able to say, hey, you're a jerk, <laughs> right? It was like they would make spiritual reasons for what it was a mess. I, you know, just mm -hmm. watching it, I, I felt like kind of a dog watching, you know, <laughs> tennis going, why isn't anybody putting that ball in their mouth? You know what I mean? It's like, what? This is a silly game, right? Um, so, so yeah, being in that culture had its own kind of abuse. Right. Mm, yeah. Also, we had a no judgment rule. That'll get you. That'll get you. People would say, oh, it's not a judgment. It's an observation. <laughs> and then they let loose with the judgment. <laughs> 
It's such an interesting reflection. And it's truthfully, it's one I try to bring to the forefront quite a bit in my teaching and in this podcast because it's still very prevalent. It's it's very much, I, I think, a, a, I don't know if myth is the right word, but this like false image that got layered on top of the practices. And it's hard. I see it all of the time. And I, you know, just, I teach in quite a few groups that are um, trauma recovery groups or trauma specific groups mm-hmm. and not infrequently do I have people say, oh, I went to a different yoga class or I went to a different <clears throat> meditation class and it was so triggering for me or I had this very bad experience because X. And, and so we have to have this discussion around, around this awareness of what it means to create a safe space for you and your body in the room that you are in and your own experience. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to highlight this. Yeah, especially the no judgment. I actually wrote about it in language of emotions you know it's called mm-hmm. events of judgment but in hierarchical you know hierarchies of the self the mind tends to get slapped right you know um let your mind go stop your thoughts and like you do know how the brain works right <laughs> you have looked at a some kind of a of a of a textbook about the brain um but the no judgment rule is specifically, uh, it concerns me because judgment is a synonym for intelligence, right? It's not a mm. synonym for being a jerk. And so that, you know, don't judge anything. It means don't have your full, the full access to your entire being who, mm. who has things that they like and things they don't like things that they want and things they don't want. It's basically when you say no judgment, you're saying don't have boundaries. And for me, having to have created boundaries, I'm like, oh no, I'm not going. No, that's not going to happen. (laughs) I'm going to keep my attitudes. I'm going to keep my judgments. I'm going to keep my way of seeing the world. Yeah. Judgment as a synonym for intelligence. That is a mind-blowing statement. And and what it makes me think of, I'm going to read it if that's okay, is I loved the definition of emotion that you share in the book. I might butcher this name, but it's from a sociologist, Arlie Hochschild. I would definitely butcher that. You could only know it by having heard it. (laughs) I'm so glad you said it before I did that. But I want to read this definition because it really sort of stopped me in my tracks So it's written, emotion, I suggest, is a biologically given sense and our most important one. Like other senses, hearing, touch, and smell, it is a means by which we know our relation to the world and is therefore crucial to the survival of human beings in group life. Emotion is unique among the senses, however, because it is related not only to an orientation towards action, but also to an orientation toward cognition. That invitation to reflect on emotion as a sense is such a shift from anything I have, it pers- I'll speak just personally, thought about in terms of emotion. I, ha- I mean, it really stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. Arlie Hochschild's work in emotion, she's a sociologist of emotion, but it's just, it's mind-blowing. And it's in sociology and anthropology that you really learn about emotion. Psychology 
has very little important things. Psychology is very concerning about emotion because when you have trouble with emotion, you go to psychologists or, you know, mm-hmm. people who study psychology. And I was like, they didn't study this, right? Mm. And for me, it was interesting because what I was doing as a young child was sociological work. I was looking at the group and how emotions work in groups. And so finding her, finding her piece on that, I was like, yay, Arlie, you've done it. <laughs> Thank you. It is a sense. And emotions help us make sense of incoming data. They help us feel our way through. Um, I don't know if I mentioned him in this book. I don't think I did. The neuroscientist of emotion, Antonio Damasio, looks at people whose brain has been damaged in some way, and they can't feel some or all emotions. Mm. And what he found is that with people who cannot feel emotions, they can't make decisions. They can take in all the data. Their brain works, right? All the data comes in and they can, but they don't know how they feel about the data, right? So if you give, well, come to see me on Monday or come to see me on Wednesday. And they will talk about all of the things that would make those different experiences for them. And no, but no conceptualization about how I would feel about Monday or Wednesday. So I thought that was really interesting. We think if you could just get rid of emotions, right? You and I both did that in our childhood. Yep. Everything would be great. <laughs> so much easier. <laughs> and in fact, we can't, you know, we can't figure out the world if we don't have access to our emotions. Mm. So you highlight in the book four emotional or four keys to emotional genius, I think you call them. And I, I that'll give us some context for what we're talking about, I think. So maybe you could walk us through these four keys just a little bit. The first one is there's no such thing as a negative emotion and there's no such thing as a positive one. Mm-hmm. If emotions are senses, which they are, the, you know, the whole group of them is sense. You don't have bad senses, right? You don't sit around and think, I would like to remove my sense of touch. Why would you even say that? So when you say that emotions are negative or positive, which is all throughout psychology and psychiatry and neurology. So a lot of the information coming from those three fields is heavily, uh, it's called valenced. When you valence something into positive and negative, like maybe you remember in chemistry class, you would valence atoms. The positive. I definitely don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. But basically, they're they're essentially magnets. So the negative and positive stick together and that sort of thing. But emotions aren't like magnets. They're not simple like that. But if you think of an emotion as negative, you're going to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Why would you want a negative emotion? Who who would want that? And in that avoiding, you don't develop skills. But on the other side, if you think of an emotion as positive, you're going to want to feel it all the time, even when it's inappropriate to do so. And I would, I would say that by trying to be in that emotions realm all day long, you're also not developing skills. So I think That's the most crucial thing is if you think emotions are negative and positive, you're essentially not going to understand them or develop skills. Mm -hmm. You you sort of can't because you've got this weird ideology of good and bad 
positive and negative, pro-social and anti-social. That's not what they do. That's not how they work. Yeah. Yeah. And then from that place of establishing neither a positive or a negative, you move us into, I think it's um, channeling the emotion is the second key, I believe. Yeah. Is it? I think that, I can't remember. I thought you channeling. It doesn't matter. I changed them around, but <laughs> on a, a really important one is to understand that emotions arise at many levels of um, activation. Mm. Okay. So, and this is really important for people whose emotions tend to go to 11, right? They come there at 11 that they are missing all of the zero, one, two, three, four, five, right? They're missing everything from zero to 11. And so learning vocabulary and identifying emotions earlier in their, in their progression is a way to develop skills. Now, if that emotion needs to be at 11, fine, but it's because you've got skills from zero to 11, right? But for a lot of people, for instance, anger goes to 11 every time it arises. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And from those people, we learn, okay, anger is a terrible negative emotion. But what we're not seeing is those people don't have skills with anger. The, we're not seeing the heart of anger. We're not seeing the reality of anger. We're seeing that person's level of unskilled you know, explosiveness, right? So understanding mm -hmm. that emotions arise in many different levels of activation. Then you can work specifically with one that maybe goes really high for you or one that you cannot feel very well. You, mm, okay. You don't feel a lot of happiness or you don't feel sadness appropriately. Then you can start looking and seeing at what point am I missing it, right? So you can get very I don't want to say scientific, but you can get very specific with your emotions, right? The third thing is understand that emotions arise. It's normal for emotions arise in pairs, groups, and clusters. So the problem is we don't have words for that in the English language. There's only four words for emotions in their natural state, and they're not very good words. One is bittersweet, which is a happiness and a, and a sadness at the same time but it's also a flavor so i'm not giving <laughs> i'm not giving the english language you know a pass for that one it's like you need to have better words um so we don't have words and words are uh, vocabulary is extremely important to our emotional awareness i have a whole emotional vocabulary list in the book so that you can begin to understand when you're feeling peevish versus sarcastic versus angry versus enraged. So you have that, mm. that what that articulation within your soul so that you become more aware of and functional with emotion. Yeah. You know, I was just having this conversation with a friend about that we didn't have any words between. I'm hungry and I'm starving. <laughs> there was like just those two words and there was nothing in between that massive gap. We had this huge conversation about it because neither of us had any words. We were like <laughs> looking them up. And it, so it's interesting to hear you say that. And I, you know, often I talk about how easy it is to say, I'm sad, I'm mad, I'm glad. Yeah. And there's so many other places to go yeah. in this little three dots on a line, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. I was thinking about hungry in England. They have um, peckish, 
Okay. <laughs> I guess I, I want to pack yeah. things. Yeah. Okay. And um, in Winnie the Pooh, I think they have, I'm feeling 11 o'clock-ish. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm going to bring that back to my friend because that one's really good. It's like you have to go to different cultures to figure out things <laughs> because English sometimes lets us down so terribly. <laughs> I like that. 11 o'clock-ish. That, that makes sense to me. It really does. Okay. So emotions arrive in clusters or groups. Yes. Or pairs. They hang out together. Mm -hmm. They love each other. And if you think of them as a sense and a part of cognition, you're going to want as many as, as want to be there. You know, you like welcome emotions. You're a part of my intelligence rather than, ah, why are there so many emotions here? No. No, um, it's not organized. Like emotions have their own organization. Trust them. No, you're like speaking. My little part of my brain is you're you're voicing it right now. That's, that's everything I've ever thought. That's a mess. Um, um, and then the fourth key is to learn. There's a middle way between expression and repression, and I call it channeling. Um, not channeling um, disembodied spirits, but channeling in the in the original meaning of the word which is to move something along a pathway that it meant to go so if i understand for instance that anger is about setting boundaries i have a whole different way of working with anger than just taking off after someone right um so i begin to understand how to work with the emotion in the in the work that it came to do or it came to help me do uh, when I know that sadness is about letting go of things that aren't working anymore, that gives me a whole new approach rather than repressing my crying or crying without any kind of consciousness. Um, yeah, so it's like bringing a, a middle path. Mm -hmm. um, and it's fine to repress and express, but there's also that middle path. Yeah. And so this whole second half of the book is these... I think you call them families of emotions. So there's an anger family. Uh, I can't. An, I, sadness, a sadness. Fear family and happiness family. Yeah. Yeah, and and you give us some ways to work with and understand, I guess, these particular emotions. And one that I wanted to see if maybe we could talk a little bit about is anxiety. As a meditation teacher, that's the one I am in conversation with the most because many people turn to meditation because they struggle with anxiety. So maybe we could talk about anxiety as an emotion, which is also interesting because I don't know that I would necessarily call it an emotion as much as an experience. So please inform me. <laughs> <laughs> the original version of the language of emotions, which I wrote in 2009, did not have anxiety in it because like many people, I thought of anxiety as a problem not mm -hmm. an emotion, mm -hmm. a problem in with your fear. And I have since learned much more than that. <laughs> um, from actually uh, the psychologist, Mary Lamia, who wrote a book about it. Um, I heard her on a radio show and she talked about anxiety as the emotion of motivation. It's the emotion that helps you get things done, either organizing yourself and getting a task done or focusing on the future and hitting a deadline. <clears throat> and I just had to pull over the car because I'm like, oh my gosh, no wonder I didn't understand anxiety because 
I get things done like a year beforehand. So my anxiety never rises to the level that I could identify it. I was like an anxiety professional hidden from my own self, right? <laughs> no, I found that out in 2010 after the book came out. It's like, thank you. Thank you, world. And so the poor, you know, earlier version of the book didn't have anxiety. And in the, in the um, intervening years, I wrote a book about anxiety called Embracing Anxiety. And as I was doing my research on it, I asked people, tell me what anxiety is. And to a person, they were um, describing panic, mm. which is a close emotion in the fear family, but it is not anxiety. They're very different emotions, but they travel together a lot. So anxiety is emotion that sort of leans into the future and helps you organize yourself and get things done and plan ahead and do, do, do. Lots of energy and anxiety. Panic is the emotion that saves your life when you're in physical danger. So it's got the fight, flee, freeze, flock to safety behaviors in it. Panic is also an incredibly in energetic emotion, right? It's the emotion that can help a tiny woman pull a truck up to get you know, the dog out from under, right? It's, it's a huge uh, life-saving emotion. These emotions tend to run like this, and I've got my hands clasped together very tightly, and we <laughs> name them anxiety, which is <laughs> panic and anxiety together. And so the work with these two emotions is to help them, not to treat either of them as wrong, but to help them unclench from each other a little bit. So the questions for panic are, am I in danger right now? Am I in literal physical danger of losing my life? And if the mm. answer is no, you can say, well, thank you, panic, for your help here. I think this is anxiety's work from right now forward. Right. So it's help, you know, helping these emotions sort of articulate themselves from each other. And the thing is, sometimes anxiety is a very forward-leaning emotion. It's about the future. Fear is about the present moment. Anxiety is about the future. So it has an ungrounding, unbalancing nature to it. And it's highly activated. So it's very easy to kind of fall on your face if you don't know what anxiety is doing. And if panic's there, it's easy to fall on your face and you know, fall apart. So these two emotions uh, require skill, right? Because they have so much going on so you know we've learned when they're the two are together and to ask am i in literal danger of losing my life panic might say if you don't get these 19 things done and if you don't hit your deadline your job may be in jeopardy right and i say okay that's a good point <laughs> that's a good point thank you but I need to settle myself down so that anxiety and I can work, right? So you hear me talking to my emotions as people, but I find that that's, that's really helpful. So the first thing is making sure that panic and anxiety are a little bit separated. And then the work with anxiety is to say, what are my tasks? What are my deadlines? Can a normal person do them? Or is this a superhuman task that I've created for myself? One of the things that we say is that if there's any dread or danger in your anxiety, panic is there. Mm. And so the important thing is to find out why. Um, what's panic doing in your anxiety? Why, why is it there? 
That is such an interesting reflection. And, you know, I think a lot of the discussion I'm noticing in meditation class, it feels like it is almost ontologically based. Like the, the fear is, it is a survival. It is a panic. It is a survival, but it is because we're talking about crime, climate crisis. And so now we're having to hold this. It, there, there is very scary future possibility. And in this moment, the present, which is this practice, mindfulness, is what's true in this moment, which is, am I in danger in this particular moment, which is a different question. Yeah. So I'm going to carry this thought through because what I'm remembering that I really enjoyed in your book is you have a chapter on elemental nature and you pull the elements in as a balancing technique, which um, is my own personal, like I absolutely love the elements and do quite a bit of work with them. So I was interested to, to see, write about this in terms of working with emotion and empathy. So talk to us about the elements. I brought in the elements because of the the hierarchical nature that we, uh, you know, pile onto emotions. So the elements are earth, air, water, fire. And earth is the body, the physical world. Air is the mental or intellectual world. Fire is the spiritual or visionary world. And water is the emotions and the world of art and drama and, you know, that kind of movement. And the reason I brought in the four elements was to talk about how they need to be balanced. You can't just be in fire. You can't just be in air. You can't avoid water because without water, all of everything dies. Right? Everything mm. dies. <laughs> or the fire consumes everything, you know? Um, and looking at the elements in that way, I think is for me was was very helpful. It was a part of my early sort of sort of thinking about emotion. Um because I saw that without water, nothing can work well. The earth, you know, desiccates. The wind blows everything away. The fire burns everything. It's water that's tempering almost everything. And actually, when you temper swords or metal, you go from mm-hmm. fire to water. Mm. Water, fire, water, fire, and it becomes tempered. So, so yeah, living in this kind of watery world as I did growing up, I I understood more about the water element than I think many people did because I understood the oceanic terror of it and I understood some of the delight of it. I'll say it was the terror. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, yeah, just looking at that kind of balancing and what I've found that when people can get those four elements together, a fifth element will come out, which is Mm -hmm. called nature or uh, wood in the Chinese or the center, right? All of the elemental things have this center element, but that if you're trying to look at the human soul and it's imbalanced in the elemental nature, you're not going to see that central nature come out. You're not going to see kind of the flowering of humanity. You're just going to see, you know, one quarter, one half of what's available. Um, and you won't have that kind of alchemical magic that happens when people get get their shit together <laughs> get your elements mm-hmm. together pal yeah. 
You know, um, I am remembering that in one of my classes really recently, as I was talking about the elements, the first guess was that fire was the was the emotions. That was that was the first guess is oh it's fire because it's so scary and uncomfortable and like ragey, you know, um, fiery. And I was like, oh well, what if it was water? And it it doesn't that feel so different? Yeah, right. If you if you shift where you think emotions lie, if you think about emotions as water, it's very different. You remember the famous Japanese? Is it a woodcut of the? I think yeah, they, I've seen it everywhere. But it's this picture of the water coming over. I think that that gives a lot of. Oh yeah, that's, that's the emotions. The emotions. <laughs> it was like ah, yes, yes. <laughs> There's a little boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. I love that reflection of emotions um, being tied to our elemental nature. I feel like it invites in a sense of uh, potential balance when we might be thinking about emotions as something that run wild. And as you named before, it's not just at 11. There's all those points before we reach level 11 with whatever emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and they're beautiful. I think a lot of people think that I'm saying that emotions should be like at around three, right? But there are many times when your emotions need to go to 11. And if you have no skill with them, you may throw yourself away behind that, right? Like there's times when your panic needs to go to 40, right? And it needs to go. And, and for me, it's to try to create like a ground for my emotions to do the work that they do. Cause I see them as a part of our intelligence, especially our pre-verbal nonverbal um, kind of ancient intelligence, right? We didn't get here. We didn't just arrive here. Hi, it's my, <laughs> I'm just here. We came from you know, this <laughs> massive heredity of mm-hmm. people who survived because they listened to their panic. <laughs> right they're like yeah i don't want to go by that snake and everyone who went by the snake died and they don't have any descendants but but i'm one of those descendants yeah (laughs) yes that is so real that is so real i um i want to ask a question that i'm just curious on your your own thoughts on this because i am raising two little children i have a eight-year-old and a four-year-old who are so full of emotion. Yes. And I am a parent who's done a lot of work on emotion and mindfulness and being present. And my intention very much is to make space for my children to have all their emotions. And when they do, I find it to be the hardest thing in the world not to say, if you're going to act like that, go to your room and close the door until you're done. (laughs) Because it is hard to let emotion, especially at level 11, especially when it's presented as raw emotion that doesn't have a clear logic or explanation, there's no solution to it. Um, And I just wonder if maybe you could speak a little bit to the parents out there who are not only holding their own emotion, but holding space for others to have their emotions. Yeah. I think if you've got a very a very up and down child it can help to talk about emotions when they're not all activated Mm. right 
and then and then maybe even to do like a, a post-emotion talk about so what were you feeling then right to give them to give them emotional vocabulary and then talk to them about well what could you have done or what would have helped or you know like like really look at it after they're because especially if they're little they're not available to talk during a really that's not gonna help <laughs> you're gonna make it much worse um and also being very um being very almost uh i would say displaying your own emotional life mm. you're saying i got really really mad at grandma the other day because blah 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 but here's what i did and so you're bringing the child into the backstage of emotional life of parents or, or of adults and you know kids love that um if you look at fairy tales they're grotesque right fairy tales are grotesque mm -hmm. like people are people are eating children in the forest okay and um but it speaks to their emotional life right it speaks to the the, the witches and the warlocks and the talking frogs and the you know and the loss um and the terror and so they have such big emotions that i think fairy tales really speak to that and for many kids, that's the only place where they can really get a hold on emotion because most parents, most adults have learned to repress their emotional lives, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So children are left with no language, no models, no, you know, no conversation about emotion. And what I found is kids really love and they know emotion. They know them because they haven't been trained yet. Mm -hmm. They haven't been socialized yet that they can't show emotion or they can only show certain ones. And so I think that's like make emotions in everyday talk and expose yourself to the kids. I don't mean that in that way, but, um, you know, expose your interior emotional life, not in a weird way, <laughs> but, but, you know, find teaching moments when you can say, that person scared me and I almost yelled when they pulled into our lane, but because mm. I'm driving, right? And then you can ask them, so what would you do if you were driving and you were that scared? And just giving them, like, make it a conversation that it's okay to talk about emotions. Yeah. Mm, I and, love that. Yeah. So mo modeling it. We also have on my site, we have a free emotion chart for kids. And it's like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, anger, you know. I love just that. Perfect. <laughs> oh, I'm going to print that out. That's lovely. And listeners, I will link to it in the show notes. That is awesome. Yeah. We made it for kids and then adults wanted their own. Of course. It's like, okay. So now we've got an adult one too. Because <laughs> we need help with our emotions. We haven't been taught. Yeah. 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 It's just, you know, I was a very emotional kid. Like I was an explosive kid. And whenever I would have an emotion that went above three or four in school, I would be sent to the principal, right, or the nurse, and I learned that emotions aren't welcome in the world, but the other kids learned really powerful messaging too, right, by using me as a, as a negative example. Mm -hmm. They understood how much emotion you could show, which was almost none, and um, I think we do that a lot. If we have emotional problems as adults, we go to a therapist behind closed doors 
you know, which is guarded by all kinds of weird privacy. So we're not really able to work in our regular world with our emotions. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I wonder as we're wrapping up our conversation, if there is a practice, I know you have a couple of mindfulness practices in the book titled Building Your Raft, which I love. It's like creating these supports. Um, I wonder if there is a practice or a prompt, a reflection that you might offer us to carry us forward from today's talk. Let's do a quick boundary practice. Um, mm. People talk about boundaries a lot, and it's confusing, but there are a lot of different kinds of boundaries. There's personal, there's relational, there's financial, <laughs> you know, there's there's all kinds of different boundaries. But a boundary is a delineation between one thing and another. That's basically, so if I'm setting a boundary verbally, it'd be like, I would prefer that we do not go to that movie. I don't want to wear pink. <laughs> so how about if we go to a different movie, right? So I'm setting a boundary between what's happening and what I need for myself. But there's actually a physical boundary around your body. And some people, when I grew up, I saw it as the aura, but it's actually a, a creation of your nervous system, your brain, and your musculature. It's called the proprioceptive area. And it's the area your body is mapping at all moments to let you know where you are in space, right? And so proprioception, you can become more aware of the of the limits of your body, and that can help you begin to understand boundaries because you have a physical experience of it. And so just very simply, your proprioceptive area, I don't want to punch something, but it goes out to where your fingertips can touch. It goes above you. It goes on either side of you and make sure there's nothing in the way. It goes behind you. It goes down below you, you know, around your legs. And so this area where where your fingertips are touching is the edge of your proprioceptive space. Your body doesn't need, to, you know, it needs to know what your room is like, but also it just needs to know where its sphere of influence is, right? And this is what many people see as the aura. It's the exact dimension. It's also what Western psychologists see as personal space. It's the exact dimension. So we've had many ways to talk about this proprioceptive space. But understanding where you begin and end is extremely important, especially if you are highly sensitive. Because for many highly sensitive people who don't have boundaries, their boundary is their body. So whatever's going on out in the world comes right in. And that can create anxiety and panic because now you've got too much to pay attention to. You don't have any privacy. So mm -hmm. working with this can give you a sense that you have some space in this world. It's very simple, but your brain and your nervous system are watching all the time. <laughs> so if you're saying this is my space, they, that goes in. Like, okay. You know, when after we do this, people are like, he's in my boundary, like two kids in the backseat. I'm like, no, it moves in, right? It moves, it knows where you are. So yeah, it knows what, what, what's close to you and what isn't. He's looking at my boundary. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear that now. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that's very simple and very strange. But it's taking advantage of a, of a structure that already exists and giving you a sense that you have some space between the world and your sensitive body. I, 
absolutely love that. And I, I literally just said, you know, we're right as we're recording this listeners, we're right um, at the beginning of August, which where I am is the end of summer and the start of school. So my kids start school on Tuesday oh, wow. and they've been home for a couple months. And I was talking to my dearest girlfriend and I said, I'm just so ready for a little bit of space. I feel so overwhelmed with all that summer entails with the lack of routine and trying to juggle all of these things. And as you were speaking, as I was moving my arms, I the first thought I had was, oh my God, I have had space this whole time and I have not been paying attention to such a simple way to remind myself of space. You know, I mean, it's not the same as having three hours to myself, but it also feels very grounding. Thank you for that. Yeah. As an entirely boundaryless person for the first 20 years of my life, this practice really, it was the beginning of kind of saving my life and mm. finding that I could have some sense of, like I could breathe because everything was coming at me all the time. So it's imaginal, but it's real. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Carla, the, I could talk to you for hours. I wish we could talk about every single emotion. Everything. Thank you. <laughs> everything. Talk, talk about everything. Thank you. Thank you for updating the book. Maybe you could tell listeners where they can learn more about you, where they can find the new book. I know you have an online academy. Um, so tell us where we can learn more. My site where you can find the free emotion chart for kids is carlamclaren.com. And I also teach online and the people that I've licensed teach as well at empathyacademy.org. So you can come, we have courses every month where you can come and play with emotions with a bunch of people with good boundaries. <laughs> what a gift that is right there in and of itself. <laughs> well, Carla, thank you. This was such a pleasure. Yes, it was good to talk. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving me a review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps others to find the show. And let's face it, we could definitely use more meditators out there. The Mindful Minute is recorded on Muskogee land and is produced with the support of Michael Sayhouse and Brianna Nielsen. To join my live classes, ask questions, or learn more about my teacher trainings, please visit MerylArnett.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.